from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Charles Grant, the CR's director. We're going to discuss the recent Windsor framework, which Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen agreed about 10 days before we recorded this podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Catherine Barnard, who is from the UK in a changing Europe think tank and also a professor at Cambridge University of European Law. Catherine's also been a guest on this podcast before, but welcome back, Catherine. Thank you very much, and it's lovely to be here. We're going to discuss a little bit about what was agreed in Windsor 10 days ago, and then we're going to move on to talk about some of the broader implications and what it means for the Britain's relationship with the European Union. But perhaps we could start off, Catherine, by me asking you, does the Windsor framework actually change very much? Because Wishi Sunak sells the, has sold this deal as a significant transformation of the Northern Ireland Protocol into something that's much more friendly to British and Northern Irish interests. But the EU has apparently been more flexible than we thought it was going to be. How much really changes with, the, with this Windsor framework? Well, yes and no. Yes, it's changed things. But of course, from the EU's point of view, it's important for them to say it hasn't changed very much. And this is part of the problem with the agreement, because the UK wanted to show that there had been dramatic changes. And indeed, there have been some significant changes. So for example, there's going to be the introduction of a green lane. And essentially, that is a trusted trader scheme, which allows goods which aren't at risk of going into the South to have much more relaxed, but not zero checks. There are also going to be changes over VAT, a value-added tax, and some quite significant changes over governance. And by that, I mean the introduction of what's now become quite famous, the so-called Stormont Break, which allows 30 MLAs, members of the Legislative Assembly, assuming it's up and running, that is a precondition, from two parties to object to any new piece of EU legislation which will be applied to Northern Ireland. Now, the thresholds for triggering that storm at break are high. It's only meant to be used in truly exceptional circumstances. Uh, it should be used as a last resort. And there are a number of procedural hurdles in apply before the break can be pulled. But the fact is that is trying to recognise that there was a democratic deficit in the original Northern Ireland Protocol. On the other hand, there is not significant change because the Northern Ireland Protocol itself is still intact. Bits of it will be amended by a joint decision. Essentially, what you have is the Northern Ireland Protocol as the backbone and the Windsor framework has been added to it. And that Windsor framework, although it sounds like just one document, in fact, it's a smorgasbord of legally binding texts, unilateral declarations, agreements, recommendations, and also the EU itself has recognised that it needs to amend some of its laws. So in fact, what you have in answer to your question, has things changed a lot? Well, yes and no. One area that came up in the talks over the recent months and years on the protocol was the European Court of Justice. David Frost, Boris Johnson's former chief negotiator, made a big fetish of the European Court of Justice being something that they wanted expunged from the enforcement of the rules for the Northern Ireland Protocol. But in the end, the, I think the European Court of Justice is, is still there, is it not? Could you tell us what role the court may play in policing the protocol? And, and is, is it the dog that didn't bark in, the, in this recent negotiation? 
You're absolutely right. And this is one of the areas that have not changed. And indeed, if you look at the EU document, the EU Q&A document, it says it in black and white. There is no change to the role of the Court of Justice of the European Union. The Court of Justice remains the sole and ultimate arbiter of EU law. And this was never going to change because so long as EU law applies in Northern Ireland, the EU's view is it's our law, so it's our court which applies. What's really interesting, given how much attention has been paid by the Brexiters, particularly Lord Frost, to the role of the Court of Justice, is just how little attention it's actually had since the framework agreement was published. And indeed, some of the ERG have, who've been interviewed have not expressed concerns about it, or they can they say they can live with it. Now, it is certainly true that its role has been de-dramatised to some extent because the volume of EU law which is deemed to apply in Northern Ireland has been shrunk somewhat and therefore the UK government can rightly say the areas over which EU law applies and thus the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice applies has been reduced. But the bottom line is it's still there. Well, you're, you're right. The EU in the end didn't have to be so flexible on the court in order to get an, an agreement for, at Windsor. But it has obviously, as you've already said, been flexible in other areas, including the green lane, so that there'll be much less bureaucracy on goods being exported from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. And I think the, f- the flexibility the EU has displayed wasn't on display in earlier rounds of negotiation when Boris Johnson and Liz Truss were Prime Minister. So it is worth thinking a little bit about why the EU did show greater flexibility in, re- in recent months. And I think part of the answer is, is that was some, some trust was re-established between the UK and the EU. Rishi Sunak seemed to be a man that the EU could do business with, unlike his two immediate predecessors. He showed he was a serious, fairly straightforward politician who wasn't playing the sort of games that Boris Johnson and Liz Trust played. I think trust was part of it. And he did some quite serious diplomacy, um, building up quite a good relationship with Emmanuel Macron, the French president, when they first met at Sharm el-Sheikh. I think James Cleverley, the foreign secretary, also did quite a good job of building up relationships with the German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, and other European foreign ministers, and indeed with Sefcovic, the EU's chief chief negotiator on this this business. So I think that's part of it. But I also think we have to recognise the role the war in Ukraine played. It did make Sunak and Macron think that it was really wasn't a good idea to have serious rifts and disagreements and arguments between two of the most important countries in Europe and indeed between the European Union and the United Kingdom. So I think that helped set the context and made both sides more willing to show flexibility than they had in, had in fact done so. But back to Northern Ireland, one of the objectives of the deal on the protocol was to try and get the Democratic Unionist Party, the leading Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, back into the Northern Ireland executive because they've been boycotting the executive saying that until the protocol is completely torn up, they're not going to go back into government. It's not clear at the time of recording this whether they will accept the Windsor framework or not. Their, their response has been a bit ambivalent so far. But do you think, Catherine, we may actually get a return to proper government in Northern Ireland rather than direct rule from Westminster? These things are always very difficult to predict and Northern Ireland politics is particularly volatile. But I think what we can say is the fact that the DUP have not rushed to judgment is already a positive sign. I think the fact that they have sought external advice is also a good sign. It may be that we have to wait a while to hear from the DUP because you've got local elections coming up on the 18th of May. We might hear from them formally after that. The DUP is in a difficult position because it's very worried about losing votes to the more fervently unionist TUV and UUP. On the other hand, if they do 
renounce this deal, a deal which I think has got quite a lot going for it for Northern Ireland. It puts the DUP into a very weak position, both in respect of the UK government, but also in respect of the Americans and also the rest of the European Union. And so there may be huge pressure on the DUP to accept the deal. And of course, if a package of financial measures was extended to the DUP to help the situation in Northern Ireland, particularly to address some of the really serious issues that Northern Ireland is facing over, for example, its health care, then this might persuade the DUP to come back into government. We've talked about the DUP, perhaps a brief mention of the ERG, the other problem that Rishi Sunak faced, the European Research Group, the group of right-wing Eurosceptic MPs who were growling a lot before the deal was done at Windsor, trying to scare Rishi Sunak off from making great concessions to the EU. They've been a little bit quiet too. Some of them obviously don't like the deal, and David Frost is not a fan of the the deal in Windsor, but others have more or less said they can live with it and it's not so bad, and the fact that Steve Baker and Chris Heaton-Harris, the two senior ministers in the Northern Ireland office who are great Eurosceptics and friends of the ERG, have accepted Windsor and praised it to some degrees. It's probably helped to make sure the ERG is not creating the kind of problems that Rishi Sunak might have expected. But I think the question remains, though, to what extent can Britain achieve a, a more constructive and friendly relationship with the EU now that we have the Windsor framework in place, given that the Tory party remains a party full of quite a lot of Eurosceptics who don't like the EU at all. Catherine, what do you think are the obstacles to a better relationship and do you think Sunak can achieve it or is, are, there, are there still problems he's got to face and may find difficulties in overcoming? I think we've got to give credit to Rishi Sunak for standing up to this previously very powerful wing of his own party and going ahead with some sort of agreement which he knew would upset parts of his party, particularly the fact that there's still a role for the European Court of Justice. But I think it's also worth bearing in mind that the ERG's powers may be waning somewhat because the public view about Brexit is also changing, that the public is yet to see some of these benefits of Brexit that the ERG have long talked about. And the fact is, if you look at the polling at the moment, there is signs that an increasing number of people think that Brexit is a mistake. Now, that doesn't by any means indicate that they wish to return to the European Union. But the ERG is perhaps beginning to wake up to the fact that they can't assume that the British public will go with them. And so it may be a combination of that. And also perhaps, as Steve Baker himself said, an element of exhaustion with the whole Brexit process that you might see the ERG's powers beginning to reduce. Well, I hope you're right. In the long run, I think you are right that Brexit has become a less important issue for a lot of the right-wing Tory MPs who have kicked up a lot of fuss about it until now. But I still worry, perhaps a little bit more than you do, about at least in the short and medium term, the kind of problems that the ERG or some members of it may may make for, for Rishi Sunak. I mean, we do have this ridiculous bill called the Retained EU Law Bill going through Parliament at the moment, which will, if it passed, would force the government to either abolish, amend or accept thousands of pieces of legislation which derive from EU law. Nobody knows how many, perhaps 5,000, before the end of the year, which is just a logistical impossibility. There aren't enough civil servants to go through rewriting and amending 5,000 pieces of legislation. But the Rishi Sunak, it seems from what one gathers, is unwilling to to pull this bull and to scrap it because he's worried about upsetting Mr Jacob Rees-Mogg and other members of the ERG. So I think the ERG is still there 
able to create problems and difficulties. And the other issue one might mention is the measures taken against immigration, Rishi Sunak's latest proposed legislation to make it harder for illegal migrants to come to the UK. As the government has admitted, these probably breach international law and may well breach the European Convention on Human Rights. And you have a Home Secretary who is Mrs. Braverman, who has actually called for Britain to leave the European Convention on Human Rights. So there are all these very right-wing Europhobic forces still at large in the Conservative Party. So I think there's a limit to how far a rapprochement can go between the UK and the EU, so long as uh, that remains the case. But I hope, I hope that your optimism is justified. <laughs> Just finally, Catherine, do you think things would be very different with a Labour government? How would you think a Labour government would handle some of the issues of Britain's relationship with the EU? At the moment, we're not seeing any real indication that Labour are taking a very different attitude to the EU. Of course, Keir Starmer has got to recognise that uh, a large number of his own natural supporters voted leave. And so he's got to be quite careful about what he says. I think quite rightly, he agreed not to play politics over the Northern Ireland Protocol. And he was upfront that he would support Rishi Sunak over the Windsor Agreement. Now, the question for Labour is how they address what the future relationship might look like. Remember that there is a review of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement in 2026. So the work needs to be done in late 2024, post-election and into 2025. And Labour are going to have to work out what the ask might be. It seems to me extremely unlikely they will ask for radical things. I suspect that we will proceed with corgi-like steps as opposed to kangaroo leaps. And yes, it's certainly the case that the Labour Party are talking about having a veterinary agreement, perhaps some form of SPS sanitary and phytosanitary agreement. But these really are not going to affect the dial very much in terms of delivering significant economic benefits. However, the thing that would make a big difference is joining the European economic area. But at the moment, there is no signs of that. And of course, the fundamental problem about joining the European economic area, i.e. doing a Norway, is that we would be rule taker rather than rule maker. And for the Bank of England, this is totally unacceptable. And I imagine for many people in Kirstamba's own party, it would also be unacceptable. I agree with that. And I don't think we're going to expect a significant change to the relationship to, between Britain and the EU with the Labour government. And to, as you rightly say, they're not going to go back to freedom of movement, customs union or the single market. But as, uh, even if they do, as you suggest, make an agreement on plant and animal health standards, that could make some difference to farmers. I think they do plan to join some sort of structures on foreign policy and defence policy cooperation, which would certainly be helpful in dealing with external problems. They might rejoin Erasmus they might introduce some movement on mobility so it's easier for you or I to go and give a lecture on the, on the continent of Europe without needing a, a visa before we do so and so musicians can travel more easily and so on. I think that the, at the margins they will make some changes. The tone will be better, significantly better. The atmosphere will be more friendly. But what won't change probably significantly is the macroeconomic damage that Britain is suffering because of Brexit. Perhaps in later, in later terms of, of a Labour government that something, the structure of the relationship may, may change. But I think the structure has been set by Boris Johnson's government, the, the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement, even with the recent improvement of the Windsor framework, is, is still in place and is, is not, not great for the British economy. And that's the problem we're going to have to contend with. Catherine, thank you very much for talking to us about the Northern Ireland Protocol's amendment through the Windsor framework. We look forward to having you back on one of our podcasts again soon. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.